I'm Caleb Rowe, and this is the Air of Grievances podcast. Happy Thanksgiving, guys. I got a pretty simple episode for you today. We're going to play my talk from Revolution Church. You can also go to revolutionchurch.com to find just the talk itself. I was also planning on including a new segment that my dad and I are doing together called Pop Goes the Doctrine, which is maybe more clever than you realize because I call my dad Pops. Get it? Yeah. Unfortunately, the Skype recording audio didn't turn out very well. Uh, He was trying to use a rig from at home involving a condenser microphone going through Skype and it didn't turn out quite right. So unfortunately, I don't have the audio from that. But I do have a couple of voicemails that he left me afterwards that were just kind of summarizing and concluding his thoughts that I thought were really, really good and really, really potent. And so I'm going to go ahead and play those in lieu of Pop Goes the Doctrine. And then I'll just go ahead and play my very, very first time preaching my sermon from Revolution. Hey, Gil. I had a great time talking yesterday. Then this morning, going to church, it finally dawned on me a point we were trying to make, and that is uh, related to Christ as the means to an end, and therefore, in Protestantism, when they talk about, well, there are sacraments, such as baptism and communion, and the Catholics the same thing. These are sacraments, baptism and communion. And then the Protestants say, yeah, but we're not like you. We believe that these are a means toward grace, not a means toward salvation. And as I was the pastor say that today, it, it finally realized, you know what, he's just saying the same thing in a different way, maybe backing off a half step from the previous point, and yet it's not aligned to Scripture yet in that we are saved by grace through faith. And folks say, yeah, but you've got to do this to get there. And it has to be through the church you get there. And I agree with the church part. I disagree through this. I disagree with through this. And then, you know, Paul says, if you get yourself circumcised, then the whole, that's a work. You know, taking some action, outward behavior, that is just disqualifying Christ entirely. So any kind of works, any kind of replacement of a behavior with what's in the heart is contrary to our faith. However... Then the church would say, okay, well, there are all these people coming in saying they're saved, but they don't have to go to church, they don't have to do anything outwardly. It's like free grace, and now they're good for the rest of their life. Well, they're being deceived. Okay, fine. So let's step back and reconsider. Uh, and here's what I would offer. It's that there are really four things, not just three things. In other words, if there are means and methods, and, you know, that's what they often talk about. They go, let's just, baptism is a method by which you reach this means, which is, going to result in the end, and the end being salvation. So I'd say, no, let's realize we're confusing things, because there's ends, means, methods, and materials. So taking communion, so that's materials. You're taking something into yourself, and that's not 
a means. That's not an ends in any shape. And in business, we say there's the mission, then there are principles for achieving it. There are techniques within the principles, and then there are tools by which you do it. Or in engineering, it's design, which is followed by form, which is followed by function, which is followed by the materials by which it's put together. So here's my conclusion. When we say you must believe in your heart, that's always true. That's always the same. It's the same for anyone, whether they can speak or not. So Christ is the means. Where it starts going wrong in the church is confusing the means, the methods, but even beyond that, forgetting about the ends that result in the means, then the methods, and finally the materials by which it's done. So here's my conclusion, whether you're Protestant or Catholic. You've missed this part, perhaps. So believing in your heart is the method by which you reach the means, which is the end being a relationship with God. Then the rest are just methods and materials, that is, confessing with your lips. All right, That's a way to express outwardly. So the principle behind it, you express outwardly. And in the small setting, perhaps, you yourself are now being convinced of what is in your heart. Then being baptized, taking yourself to another level, saying, I make the statement to myself, and I make it in front of all these other people. It's not what saves me, it is what helps me get saved through my belief in my heart. And then finally holding communion, that material outward peace that then is speaking to me. This is me taking Christ. Personally, I need to, I must take in Christ as his example and then do as he does and then taking communion as a way of stating it. Welcome to Revolution, guys. My name is Caleb. I'm a member here at Revolution. Uh, Jay is still out of town. He has a speaking engagement that he's doing today, and so the guest speaker that he had lined up was not able to make it, and so he asked me to deliver the talk this week. Um, I'm not a preacher. I've never preached before. I've never delivered a sermon or a talk, but I'm honored to be asked, and I'm going to give it my best shot. So, Please bear with me. I'm also a little bit under the weather, got a little bit of a cold going on. So those are my disclaimers. Those are my my outs. So anyhow, I'm going to talk today about how do we as Christians interact with other Christians that we don't see eye to eye with, and maybe especially those who are still part of the sect or the tribe or the denomination that we ourselves were once associated with or once identified with. I know that's the case for me myself, and I don't want to project anything onto you, but I'm sure that that is the case for some of you. Maybe even the group that you came from was the group that kind of initially made you want to find a new way to express your Christianity and maybe played a big part in landing you where you are today. A quick little bit of backstory about myself and where I'm coming from on this idea. I went through a time of rebellion and experienced a lot of anger and frustration. I thought that I was angry with God but I came to realize that I was actually just frustrated with the church, or at least some of the members. I was turned off by a lot of double standards and hypocrisy that came to light. It was really weird. There was like this three-month period where maybe every other week or so, every few weeks, a new kind of scandal would break out. And they were always affiliated with some sort of adulterous relationship that involved either people that I was close with, maybe my neighbors, 
a lot of the people in my physical community were also members of my church community. And so there were people that I respected and that I thought that I knew really, really well that I kind of found out were hiding certain attributes about themselves or certain practices that they were in. Some of them were even parents of really close friends of mine. So, you know, that didn't help. And then a lot of them were also church leaders. They were in leadership positions. And so that was what kind of initially turned me off to at least that denomination that I came from. And at the time, I thought to God in general. And after a time, which spanned a few years in college of searching for answers in other places and looking to other religions and worldviews, and I'll say some bits of which I learned valuable lessons from and I still carry with me. Like, uh, for a time, I considered myself a pragmatic American Buddhist, and a lot of lessons that I learned during that time I still benefit from and and still carry with me and how I relate with the world around me and how I interact with people. And I learned, eventually, kind of ironically enough, that there are expressions of Christianity, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, that sort of parallel some of these practices, like mindfulness meditation and things like that. They may just call it by another name. But I absolutely believe that my time of wandering and pushing against and wrestling with God and the church was an essential time for my own development and was necessary to bring me back to re-examining and eventually re-embracing Christianity, but from a very different angle. I now try to approach it totally honestly and allow myself to consciously ask the questions that had really always been on my mind, but had been you know, considered sort of taboo or off-limits to even consider at least in my own head, at least in my own interpretation and my own inner monologue, who can say what messages were actually being given to me intentionally and what messages I was just kind of interpreting myself as a result of my own worldview and my own perspective and my own struggles with chronic depression and things like that. It kind of landed me here, I guess, in the end. By here, I mean as what some might call a progressive or liberal Christian, embracing both Christ and my own innate skepticism, which if I believe that God is in total control and sovereign, to use a church word, I have to believe that I'm this way by design and that I am where I am very much intentionally in the grand scheme. And if God doesn't want me to be a skeptic, then God will change my heart. So the question is, how do we interact with and how do we communicate with Christians that we don't see eye to eye with? that maybe we don't see eye to eye with anymore, or that maybe we've never seen eye to eye with, or maybe we, that we just don't like, maybe our personalities clash. Do we actively seek out conversations about our disagreements? Do we huddle up with other Christians who agree with us and cut off contact with anyone else? Do we spend time with those we disagree with and just avoid the confrontations and just kind of smile and nod when they say something that we don't agree with? Do we form our own churches, or do we join their church? I don't know. I really don't know. And so this talk is my thoughts and my speculations, but I really don't have answers to this. I decided to approach this by first laying out some things that are common sense or logical to me based on my own past experiences, and then to look at some verses in Scripture that might possibly have some application or offer some insight. So starting off, a few things I do know. First, it's dangerous to be insular, and to be exclusively surrounded with kind of yes people, to be surrounded only by a group that reinforces and agrees with our own ideas, nothing good has ever come from that approach. 
I very much believe that, and I think there are lots of examples of that. Nothing good has ever come from just interacting with people who share and echo your worldview and your perspective. Uh, Second, I know that I personally fell into a sort of an arrogance, feeling more spiritually, quote-unquote, evolved than those who I saw as still stuck in the worldview that I left behind. And I was shocked when I realized this and when I saw this in myself, when I saw that I had fallen into a pattern of doing something that had specifically turned me off to the church in the first place, taking a stance of considering myself holier than thou, quote-unquote, towards the people that I considered to be the holier than thou's, sort of regarding myself as more enlightened than those still in the tribe that I had left. And I know that's a dangerous mindset to be in. And it's a mindset that I still battle, that I still fight against, that still rises up in me at times. And then third, this one I can only speak for myself, but if I truly desire, as I claim that I do, to have a completely objective and honest skepticism and an open-mindedness to new or different ideas, then it has to, it mandates taking that stance towards conservative Christians too. For example, I have to say that maybe six-day creationists and biblical literalists are totally right, and I am totally wrong. I have to try to overcome the pitfall of my own self-righteous, jaded attitude and say, maybe they're right. And if I can't do that, I have to at least respect their positions, because they may be genuine and sincere. You know, it is also possible that they are just too afraid to honestly evaluate things or just too comfortable in their own handed-down traditions And I know how it is to be in that mindset. I was once in that mindset myself. And I have to love them and embrace them as long as they are truly a follower of Christ. I have to embrace all followers of Christ. We are one body. Fourth, I know that setting an example is the way to bring change and inspire unity in other people. And we can't set an example without personal interactions. But how do we interact? How do we approach those interactions? What mindset should we be embracing and reaching for and practicing when we enter into those interactions? Like I said, I don't know. So I figure I should look at Scripture, which as Brian said so rightly last week, we must all turn and examine Scripture like a gem and appreciate the refractions that we see from our own personal perspectives and experiences. And so I'm I'm sure that we'll all have different takes and different parts of these verses will stand out to us in different ways. I want to first look at Christ, kind of look at the source. You know, Christ was a religious rebel, yet he was Jewish by religion. He was a rabbi, so he was sort of in the system, as it were. He adamantly disagreed with the church leaders of his time, and the Bible gives us several examples of his interactions with them. And I think it is interesting and worth pointing out that the Bible doesn't really show Christ in the synagogue or the church as we would call it nowadays very often. Once he started his ministry, especially, he didn't really hang around in church very often. But we do have some examples of him in church interacting with people that share his religion of Judaism. One of the few stories where we see a peek into Jesus' behavior as a child, and we see kind of a look at his character, is in Luke 2.41. And this is from the New Living Translation. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among relatives and among their friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, three days later, 
They finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. Yes, Jesus was asking questions of the religious leaders. I think that's important to point out, too. The passage goes on, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, Why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. So, he's either fully omniscient, as I was taught in the denomination that I grew up in. He was fully omniscient or all-knowing, in more layman's terms, from birth, in which case he ran off, scared the crap out of his parents, and then gave them a kind of snarky answer that he knew that they wouldn't understand when they asked him why he did this to them. Or... The other possibility that I see is that he's a genuinely confused 12-year-old, not understanding how they just didn't assume that he was safely kind of chilling with the leaders in the temple for three days. Or, or maybe there's some other answer I can't think up. But then, going back to the scripture, he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them, and his mother stored all these things in her heart. Then, this is one of my favorite verses in the whole book, or, or this collection of books right now. I love this verse. It says, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. And as a side note, I can't help but wonder if we often fundamentally misunderstand the nature of Christ's humanity. I can't help but ask, how can God grow in favor with God? Or how can God ask God to take this cup from him? like Christ did before the crucifixion or during the crucifixion, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can God ask God, why have you forsaken me? Anyhow, that's a whole other can of worms and a whole other Sunday's worth of a talk topic right there. So anyhow, here we see in this scripture, we see Jesus is seeking out an understanding of traditional wisdom, of the conventional wisdom, the conventional religious perspective of his era from a young age that was essential, I believe, in his coming to realize what new or renewed message he had to preach that helped to shape his worldview and his own ministry later in life. And before he starts this ministry, now he's much older, after his 40 days in the wilderness of fasting and overcoming temptations, I'm sure many of you are familiar with that, we see Jesus in the synagogue again. This is later in Luke chapter 4, starting with verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, the oppressed will be free, and the time of Yahweh's favor has come. And at first... You know, this is kind of a big passage here, so I'll kind of sum it up. At first, everyone is impressed and speaking favorably of him. But then Jesus says that a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown, so he won't heal and help everyone there like he did in the other towns, like in Galilee. And then the whole place kind of turns on him. And they literally, they mob him and try to throw him off a cliff. But he passes through them, as the scripture says, and in verse 31, he leaves his hometown and goes off to Capernaum, and you, you know can't really blame him there uh, after that reaction from the people trying to chuck him off of a cliff. 
So verse 31 picks up, He taught there in Capernaum, in the synagogue, every Sabbath day. The people were amazed at his teaching because he spoke with authority. So he hasn't slowed down, even though his teachings clash with popular thought, he's still moving from church to church, essentially, and he just keeps preaching truth every single Sabbath, back to back. And the congregation is just amazed. And so he starts preaching his countercultural message inside churches before recruiting 12 super diverse dudes and teaching outside of the church, just kind of wherever, usually out in the open air. And another side note, so the synagogue or the temple of the church, the religious gathering place, is not a taboo or bad place by any means, but I think it is interesting that Christ starts his teaching there, then kind of steps outside of its walls and stays outside of its walls as he continues and develops his teaching. But back to the question of how do we interact with Christians with different perspectives, conclusions, and even just general approaches to Christianity. Paul talks about this issue quite a bit in his letters to different churches that he was in communication with, and he gives a lot of varying takes on it. I always wish that I knew exactly what situation he was responding to or like had access to the letter from the church that his letter is replying to, but we know that he is writing about different specific case-by-case situations, and really at times we have to just sort of read between the lines or make inferences on what he's talking about based on the advice that he gives. But in, in Romans and in First and Second Corinthians especially, we see that as long as professed Christians are not actively intentionally living a life outside of love, it's essential for us to set aside differences, differences in interpretation, differences in doctrine that are not essential or matters of personal opinions or personal theories, so to speak, and be involved with fellow followers of the way, fellow followers of Christ. Even specifically with relationships between different factions or school of thought or denominations, as we would call them nowadays, in 1 Corinthians 3 we see, starting with verse 4, and this is the English Standard Version here, uh, when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And this scripture is obviously encouraging unity between factions, in this case, followers of Paul and Paul versus followers of Apollos. And it shows that the members of these different denominations can learn from each other, from each other's differing perspectives, doctrines, experiences, interpretations, in the metaphor of spiritual growth resulting from one denomination, like Paul's planting, and the other denomination, like Apollos's watering, that is what results in spiritual growth, that cross-denominational interaction. And we also see that from the start, from the very start of church history, Literally, the earliest Christians were divided by what we'd now call denominations. And it's silly. It's just silly to argue over differences in doctrines and interpretations. These differences actually offer new insights and growth through interactions between Christians with different perspectives. I know that recently I kind of experienced this when I was on an airplane traveling from the West Coast back to the Midwest where I was currently living. And I was sitting next to a lady. We didn't really talk much during the flight at all. And then as the plane was starting its descent, she noticed on my hand a tattoo I have that says, Wash Feet. And honestly, usually people, 
when they see that tattoo, they kind of they think it's a, a silly thing reminding me to wash my feet when I get home or something like that. But she was able to see um, my intent behind the tattoo when I got it, which honestly, I guess it's not that clear. But she identified herself as a Christian and said that she really liked my tattoo. And then somehow she got onto the topic of heaven. And she started talking specifically about very, very specific things that she anticipated experiencing in heaven and very, very specific things that I might not necessarily agree with or see eye to eye with her on about what she was anticipating and how she could not wait to get to heaven and that it was going to be so awesome and so amazing and she just couldn't wait. And then, like, perfect timing, we hit turbulence. And the plane just, you know, started to shake a little bit and she just got super stiff. And she grabbed at her armrests, and she had white knuckles. She was just clenching so hard, and she was obviously very, very scared of this prospect of possible death. I mean, it wasn't even that much turbulence. It wasn't even that big of a deal, honestly. Um, and, and I, you know, this may be a result of some sort of nihilistic tendencies that I have or something like that, but I like to think that it has at least something to do with my acceptance of God's sovereignty and of the fact that what's going to happen is going to happen. And if we're, you know, if we're going to go down, then we're going to go down. If we're going to die, we're going to die. And my demeanor didn't change at all. My The way I was acting didn't change. I remained really calm. And to be honest, for the sake of full disclosure, I um, kind of poked at her a little bit. When we were starting the descent, I said, oh, you know, if we were to fall out of the air right now, we wouldn't feel anything. We would just die immediately on impact. It wouldn't be a big deal. And then as we continued descending and got a little closer to the ground, I said, oh, yeah, now, uh, you know, maybe a few people might survive and a few people might make it. uh, So, you know, we might not be so lucky now. And then we got a little bit lower and I said, oh, well, yeah, we definitely just, you know, break some bones and uh, be bad news for everybody. It'd just be a painful thing and we'd probably be crippled for life and this and that. So, you know, honestly, I probably missed an opportunity to have an honest conversation with her. And whereas I hope, I hope that my actions spoke louder than my words in that I remained calm and was not scared to death, at least to the extent that she was. But yeah, I I honestly probably uh, was a little bit mean. Um, But then going back to scripture here, so that's my story. I know in in sermons, you're supposed to tell stories. So that's my story there. Um, So we see Paul encouraging more unity between divided churches and divided Christians in Romans 14. Uh, starting with verse 1, it says, Accept other believers who are weak in faith and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone else? Then skipping ahead a little, we see the same sentiment expressed in verse 5. In the same way, some think one day is more holy than another, while others think every day is alike. You should be fully convicted that whichever day you choose is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor Him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor Him, since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. And then verse 10 says, So why do you condemn another believer? Why do you look down on another believer? And another believer there can also be translated as your sibling. I'd just like to point that out. Why do you condemn your sibling? Why are you looking down on your sibling? And then it continues in verse 12, Each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead 
to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I know I am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. So issues like this one are personal. They're very subjective. That's an extremely subjective statement. For that person, it is wrong. And the scripture continues, If another believer is distressed by what you eat, you're not acting in love if you eat it. Then verse 17 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's not about our actions. It's not about our performance. It's about living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Spirit. So if you serve Christ with this attitude, you will please God and others will approve of you too. So then let's aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble or, you know, another sibling to stumble. You may believe that there is nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. So that kind of encourages the kind of smile and nod mindset of interaction with other believers over non-essential matters or non-essential doctrines. And then this last part, I love this last verse. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. That's intense. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. That's just so personal. So as Paul says, the issue of eating or not eating certain foods is an example. It represents a greater idea, which seems to be clear to me, is if something's a big deal to another follower of Christ and you don't see it the same way, just don't bring it up around that group or that person in that application. But there's also a time and place for separating and distancing yourself from other members of the body, as we have a few examples in the Bible, like if someone is knowingly, actively living a life outside of love, outside of Christ. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 quotes Christ saying, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a pagan or a tax collector. And then Paul kind of echoes this idea of unity in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, verse 14. What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is Hebrew for the worthless? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? We are the temple of the living God. Therefore, in verse 17, it says, Therefore, come out and be separate from them. So we've seen so far when to hang around Christians we disagree with and just not bring up touchy issues, you know, like eating meat or, say, evolution, but still actively engaging with them. Um, we've also seen when to distance ourselves from other professed Christians when they have, as the English Standard Version words it, sinned against you, been confronted, and then not shown any regret or repentance, to use a church word. And the reason I keep pointing out these church words is because I think there's a danger in speaking one language or dialect in church 
and another in your everyday life. I feel like it's an unhealthy practice to use terms exclusively in church or when you're discussing theology, talking about God and your spirituality with other Christians, especially when those terms have ambiguous or confusing meanings or meanings that are not consistent with their normal usage in modern everyday life, if they're used at all in modern everyday life. We see this practiced to the extreme when the Roman Catholic Church would only hold masses in Latin, and yet none of the common people in the congregation spoke Latin. And then we see that to a lesser extreme, but I still think it's a valid parallel, when churches insist on only using King James Version Bibles, using a whole dialect and a whole way of speaking and vocabulary of words that is completely different from the language and vocabulary and even grammar and sentence structure that we use in our everyday lives. I think the danger is that this lends itself to reinforcing an idea that religion or church or spirituality or the Christian part of our lives is separate from our normal lives. It's a once a week event that we attend or a mode of communicating that we put on when we're talking about God or when we're talking about our spirituality. And I believe that anyone's spirituality, in a sense, is a part of our lives. It is inseparable from our lives, at least ideally, and it's inseparable from our identities, and that a healthy church community has no distinction, no difference between how it behaves and how it presents itself inside versus outside of the walls of the church building, or outside of the times that they meet together and interact with one another. So anyhow, that's just kind of like a little a little rabbit hole, as Jay might put it. So anyhow, now let's look at when, instead of avoiding silly confrontations with others over unimportant differences of opinion, Christ really tears into, and even damns, depending on the translation you're reading and how you interpret it, members of his own religion, of Judaism, who are hypocrites. And that's kind of the key word there, is hypocrites. So this is kind of showing us when to draw the line and when to be confrontational, when to speak up aggressively against fellow members of our religion, and when to probably choose not to let these people into our inner circle if we interact with them at all. So this is Christ addressing fellow members of his Jewish faith. Matthew twenty three thirteen. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. Or, I also like how the ESV puts it, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. So not the door of, but you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow, and the ESV adds this phrase that I really like, those who would enter to go in. And then continuing with the passage, Christ says again, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you cross the land and sea to make one convert, And then you turn that person into twice the child of Gehenna you yourselves are. And Gehenna was a small valley where some kings of Judah made a practice of sacrificing their own children by fire. And some translations do replace Gehenna with hell, but I think it's important to point out that this is not the same word like Sheol or Hades that we often see translated as hell more regularly in English translations. Then Christ goes on to call them blind guides and blind fools, And then in verse 23, Christ starts out again with this same phrase. He keeps using the same phrase. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens. So we can see here that they're practicing and teaching a legalistic, works-based version of their religion. 
it continues, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And the fact that he includes listing them ignoring faith specifically really stands out and kind of surprises me here and raises the question in my mind of what faith really is if our understanding of faith is maybe a little bit skewed. Because if these people here are obviously going way out of their way and inconveniencing themselves to follow their understanding of their religion and doing all these things like going to such lengths to convert a single person and tithing and all without any material compensation just for an unseen entity or a handed down tradition or maybe for some sort of anticipated compensation after death or a metaphysical reward. If doing all of that, motivation and morality aside, is not an act of faith in Christ's terms, then that kind of makes me question our modern definition of faith, because doing all of that without a tangible reward seems to check all the boxes of our definition of the concept of faith. Like I said, morality and motives aside. But anyhow, back to the verse, it says, you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, and then here's a potent metaphor here, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So obviously Christ isn't speaking literally there, but he's making a powerful point about the dangers of legalism and putting effort into guarding against the little unimportant things, only to hurt ourselves even more by missing the bigger picture, by missing the true threats to our spiritual well-being. And then in verse 27, he really drives the phrase home all the way, starting again with the same phrase, "'What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees hypocrites?' And here's another powerful metaphor. You're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Then this time he actually spells out the meaning of the metaphor for them. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. So suffice to say, Christ, not a big fan of hypocrisy especially from the religious leaders or even people associated with the Jewish religion and the temple at the time. I'm sure that we all know the story of Christ throwing out the money changers from the temple, which is really another example of hypocrisy and self-serving deception and greed from those who are self-identified as religious or spiritual. And I'd like to look at just a couple more verses here that encourage unity and then move on and go ahead and wrap up after that. So this is back to the New Living Translation here in Ephesians 4.15. We will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it will help the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Then in verse 25, he restates, we are all parts of the same body. So we are members of the same body, of Christ's body, as those Christians that we have different perspectives then. And we're called to encourage the other members of the body, to help them grow and to embrace whatever role in the body we've been given, not to try to make them all look like us and fit into our own molds, not to make them act and think like us. How effective would a body be that was made up of just fingers? First off, that'd be pretty gross. Second, a body needs different, distinct parts, like arms and legs and toenails and even internal organs, in order to operate healthily and be effective at whatever task it's performing. We contrast and we complement each other in our differences, and we strengthen each other. 
This concept of the church as the body of Christ is all throughout the New Testament, and I would even argue that it's found in places that we don't normally think to look. For instance, I think the first allusion to followers of Christ as his body can be seen in the Last Supper when Christ gives the disciples the bread and wine, calling them his flesh and blood. Obviously, this is a huge symbolic metaphor and one that we still practice today in the ritual of communion. And as we know, we are what we eat. Anything that we ingest literally becomes part of us. And so, apart from, or maybe even in addition to, this ritual being done in remembrance of Christ, a phrase that we're all very well familiar with, it's a reminder that just as the food that we physically eat is digested, the waste removed, and then the good parts literally become a part of us, like the Passover meal that Christ shared with his disciples— There may be an intended parallel in that us metaphysically, spiritually consuming of Christ, we are metaphysically and spiritually also becoming parts or members of Christ's body. And there is one body. It doesn't do any good for a hand to argue with an ear or to be on opposing teams, in a sense, in constant conflict. That would, at the very least, detract from the capacity of the body to be productive, if not essentially cripple it altogether. And this is just one idea. This is my own theory, a take on the significance of the ritual of communion. The original intent of rituals is often lost over time, and when that happens, even though the ritual is not rendered useless, necessarily, or incapable of serving as any sort of meaningful practice for the people who are participating in it, the ritual can become just a shadow of the original concept or the original event that it was based on. And Peter Rollins does a great job of capturing this concept in his retelling of the old parable of the temple cat. It's a story in which a respected Buddhist monk tells his disciples that they're going to meditate every single morning. And so they go out to meditate, and in their temple there's a cat that's very distracting and is always walking around among them and disrupting their meditation. So he tells one of his disciples to tie up the cat to a tree in the mornings before they meditate. And so every morning before they meditate, a disciple ties up the cat to the tree. And so they're in this habit of doing this every morning. And then eventually the Buddhist monk, the teacher, passes away, and they keep on doing this in remembrance of him. They keep faithful to his commandment to tie the cat to the tree every morning before meditation. And eventually then the cat dies. So they go into the market and they buy a new cat, and they tie it to the tree every morning before meditation. And then eventually the tree dies. And so they get a new tree, get a new cat, and tie the cat to the tree every morning before they meditate. And years and years pass, and eventually the scholars and the philosophers write all these books and philosophize about the spiritual significance of tying cats to trees before meditating in the morning. And Peter Rollins does a much better job telling that story. You can find it on YouTube by just searching Peter Rollins' Temple Cat. But I think that this parable just kind of hits the nail on the head in showing us how once a practice becomes a ritual— And then the ritual becomes far enough removed from its origin through the passage of time and other factors. Compared to its original intent, it can easily become something that's just hollow and really something that's kind of silly and out of context and just a shadow of its original purpose and its original intent. And so with regards to communion, the recurring theme of individual followers of Christ comprising the one unified body of Christ, those two ideas married together, I wonder if... And this is not at all orthodox or doctrinal by any stretch. This is my own personal speculation, and that's a really really big and important disclaimer. I'm speculating. I'm not making anything close to an assertion or even a statement of anything resembling a fact. I'm just positing a question. But I wonder if, 
we are to grow towards becoming more Christ-like in our lives, and if we are to pursue fulfilling our roles as members of the body of Christ, if that could be an interpretation of the second coming of Christ. Christ said that we are to make an effort towards becoming him, becoming his body, which is him, and that he is coming back. And he even said that we would do greater things than he ever did in his time on earth. And so the question just pops in my head, could it be possible that the second coming of Christ is not necessarily the literal return of the figure or the character, to use the term character liberally, of Jesus, the man, this man descending from the clouds or from outer space or from wherever, but could the second coming of Christ's body be us? as a united church, finally fully embracing and stepping into our roles as the parts of the body that we're intended to be, and collectively bringing about the second time in history that the divine is fully incarnated on earth, serving and loving all people and encouraging others towards a connection and a fellowship with the ground of all being, with the source, with the divine. In this way, could we be Christ to others and to each other, Could we realize and actualize the mindset of the kingdom of heaven in our interactions during our time on earth? As Christ said, the kingdom of heaven is already in our hearts. It is here, it is now. I feel like I shouldn't end with that crazy theory of mine, so I will just restate that despite trifling differences, we're all truly members of one body. And it is our job to build up and grow and encourage and learn from each other and our differences and every fellow member of the universal, unified body of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for giving us this example of love, for loving us so that we can love and help us to grow in our love and help us to encourage each other to grow in each other's love and help us to accept the love that you have for us, for ourselves, Help us to love ourselves and help us to love our enemies and help us to love our brothers and sisters in you that we may not fully see eye to eye with. And just grow us towards being Christ to each other, towards being love to each other. In your name we pray, amen. I'll remind you all that Revolution is a not-for-profit organization and that any donation that you can make goes much, much further than you could ever anticipate And especially now during the holiday season, I'm sure that Jay would agree with this, that Revolution can use your donations. But as Jay always says, Revolution would much rather have you than have your money. And so with that, I thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Well, that was that. That was my first sermon. Um, As I mentioned, you can also go to revolutionchurch.com and uh, listen to it there. You can donate. Why would you listen to it again? You can donate by going to revolutionchurch.com, as I just said, I guess, in, <laughs> in my sermon. You can also go to facebook.com slash air of grievances. You can go to soundcloud.com slash air dash of dash grievances. We're on iTunes. Just search for air of grievances. Leave us a rating. That's always nice. You can also leave me a voicemail. The number is 612-460-0364. You can also support Air of Grievances by going to patreon.com slash airofgrievances. And I guess that does it for this episode. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Happy Thanksgiving!
porch, I, 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 I